Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. We're three years old as a church. You believe that? Kara reminded me of that this morning. Yeah, that's crazy. Jen Hirschberger was, uh, before I came in here, was talking to me about, she woke up this morning and she said she remembered um, our serve team meetings before service being a little different than they are now. Because we used to, uh, at the Best Western, when we started, we had like six people that were on the serve team that would meet, and we would often go meet and pray in a bar. (laughs) Because our kids' ministry was in the bar of the Best Western. So we had to cover up all the Budweiser signs and everything, and we would meet there and pray together before a service, like six people. And this morning we, I don't know, 20-ish or so probably people on our serve teams that sat in these chairs and prayed for you this morning before you got here. It's amazing. We, we built this, well, Jesus built his church here based on two promises that we embraced from the beginning, and that is that Jesus will build his church and that he'll be with us as we work to that end. And he's been faithful. I thought it was worth saying. There's a great book, uh, called, I think it's just called Bonhoeffer. Is that what it's called? It's from Eric Metaxas' book. And it talks about a character named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know that name. And Bonhoeffer... Um, was really interesting because he was like a first-rate theologian. He was a brilliant academic. Like his mind just hummed at a different rate than than mine. It was, he was fascinating. But what made him so amazing was not only was he a first-rate theologian, he also was committed to the idea that it's not enough to simply know things about God that you have to actually learn how to apply those things you know about God to your life, to the circumstances in which you live. Bonhoeffer was interesting because he lived in Germany in the time of the madman who is Adolf Hitler. And Hitler was on a rampage through Europe. And, he, and for a while, Bonhoeffer moved even to the United States. He moved to different places. But he was always pulled back to Germany because he felt like my theology has to speak to this too. And his life was one about wrestling with where does theology, where does what I believe to be true about God intersect with real life? Because it can't just be something that stays up here. And he helped other people along the way in this practice too. And so uh, he had a mini seminary for young men that would come and actually live with him. And one of the practices that they did as a seminary was every morning that they would get together and they would have a a prayer and then everyone would have to go to their own rooms and they would meditate on and think about one verse for a half an hour every day that week, the same verse. And they would have conversations about it. And, you know, I kind of feel bad for our Bible studies sometimes because we ask them to think for three to five hours about a handful of verses, and then I think of Bonhoeffer, and I'm like, ah, we can do it. Half an hour, every day, same verse, one verse. And there were things that came out, I'm sure, in the last half hour of thinking about that verse that they would have never thought of in the first couple of hours. 
I was uh, meeting with uh, Brad Weckeser this week, and he was um, telling me about, we've been having this multi-year conversation since I moved to Worcester, and he's been, he was telling me about the, the parable of the talents, this parable that has become like an old friend to him, it seems, that has informed so many of the decisions of his life and their family. And seeing God bear fruit through this parable that just has seemed to stick with him. There's a section in Matthew 6 that was really important to Kara and I when we moved to Worcester. It was about God's provision as long as you keep focused on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God will take care of everything that you need. And for a year or two, we sat in that passage and it transformed us. We became different people. We made different decisions. It became like an old friend to us. And you know, for me, I've told you about uh, when I was talking about memorization, I'm on this probably 10 to 15 year plan of memorizing Psalm 23. And I, you memorize one line at a time. The Lord is my shepherd. And you repeat that most days of the year. And it sinks into you in a different way. I shall not want the next year. And you repeat that every day of the, the year. And you keep going. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What does it say about us that we need to be made to lie down in green pastures? What does it say about God that he will make us lie down in green pastures? This is a 10 to 15 year strategy at the end of which I hope that Psalm 23 is such a part of my spiritual DNA that it just affects every part of my life. It's learning to make friends with passages that speak to you more than others. And I hope that we've modeled that a little bit with the past few times that I've preached has been on the same passage the series is about how, what we can learn about autumn, you know, from autumn, from the season of autumn, about this discipleship journey that we're on. And we landed in this passage, Luke 10, 38 through 42, which is the anchor from which we draw all sorts of implications and understandings about what autumn teaches us about pruning your life, letting things fall, letting things die, to make space for Focusing on your internal world with Christ so the external things that you do are more meaningful. So I hope that as, as we've been looking at this same passage every week, that you're, you're starting to catch on that there's a lot you can get out of just a few verses in the Bible. Now we should have a broad understanding of Scripture and we should have a systematic way of going through it in its entirety, but there's something to be said of sitting with passages too. And I hope you're seeing it. So let's turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And as another layer of understanding today, before I read it, I just want to, I'll point out some of the context. A lawyer um, went up to Jesus earlier in this chapter, starting in verse 25, and asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And he asked, Jesus asked him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he said the right things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and you shall love your neighbors yourselves. Those are the two greatest commandments. He was right. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. 
You know theology. Now do it. And Luke helps us understand what those two things mean by the very next two passages, giving examples of it. So then we go into a parable that is familiar to all of us of the Good Samaritan, and that tells us how to love our neighbor. And then we go to today's passage, which is Martha and Mary, and that tells us how to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's read it. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha's problem is that she has overextended herself. And an overextended life, 99% of the time, is a self-inflicted wound. Because you have visitors coming over, and instead of just being content to like pick up the dirty clothes, the pile of dirty clothes that's sitting in the middle of the living room, you feel like you have to pick up the pile of dirty clothes sitting in the middle of the living room and then mop the floor and wash the windows and dust and vacuum. You've overextended your life and now people are showing up and you're vacuuming. It's a self-inflicted wound. Or you have a test. We're learning about this as a family. And you feel like you have to get 130% on the test. Perfection and nothing less than that. And so you stay up to four in the morning studying. When probably a B would have been reason for celebration for me in high school. An overextended life is a self-inflicted wound. And today I want to talk about three things that we forfeit when we overextend ourselves. And this is in your notes if you're following along in the bulletin. The first one is we forfeit fruitfulness when we overextend our lives. Now let me explain fruitfulness really quickly. Fruitfulness, when we talked about last week, when you become a Christian and the Spirit of God actually comes and lives inside of you, He makes you look like God. He actually projects God's character through your life. And that character is described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We become more loving and gracious, kind. We have more peace. It's, it's resemblance. One of the ways that we exhibit fruit of being a follower of Jesus is that we begin to resemble him. Another one is roles. There's a twin benefits of being a follower of Jesus. We have resemblance and roles, which means he gives us 
an extra dose of power in expressing different ways of loving one another. These are spiritual gifts. And every believer gets one of these. And he gives us other roles and responsibilities in life too, so that whatever room that we walk into, we're bringing the kingdom of God into that room. These two things, resemblance and roles. And in order to truly bear fruit in these areas, if you want to live a productive life as a citizen in the kingdom of God, it's important to remember that authentic Christian fruit only grows out of a heart that is deeply connected and at rest in Christ. Authentic fruit will not grow out of an anxious heart. It will not grow out of a stressed and frantic heart. Alan Fadling says, anxiety tends to produce a lot of activity, but not a lot of meaningful work. This is another place where there's a book called the Living in the Two Kingdoms, and this is another place where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are very different places. And the way that you produce meaningful work in these two kingdoms is very different. It's the difference between the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel productivity. In the very beginning of Scripture, we see the Garden of Eden. Let's talk about that. The Garden of Eden is a place that God created that is fruitful in and of itself. It's going to bear fruit. Trees are going to bear fruit. It's going to yield a harvest. And there's going to be plenty of animals to tend to the garden, plenty of animals for companionship, maybe even food. And God puts two human beings in this garden to tend it. And their responsibility is not in their own strength and human effort. Oh, make this fruit grow on this tree. God's like, I put an internal mechanism in everything to bear fruit. All you have to do is partner with the work that I'm doing, which means harvesting and planting and harvesting and planting. I'm doing the heavy lifting. You enjoy it. And we walk relationally through this. And I'll meet you in the garden. We'll walk together. As, was, as he did. Real, meaningful kingdom work is meant to be somewhat like that. God is producing the fruit, and we're just harvesting and enjoying and replanting. We're watering where God's working. It's one of the things that we talk about as a staff. Where's God working that you might water instead of trying to force something? But the, the Tower of Babel's different. This is Genesis 11. This is humanity comes together and they try to make a name for themselves. So they're trying to build this tower essentially that reaches to heaven. And what energizes and animates that version of productivity is their own strength, their own drive to make a name for themselves. It's a very different way of working. And it leads to anxiety, leads to burnout. It's not the way you work inside the kingdom. Now, there, there is something to be said for working hard in the world. Do not take that away. I mean, don't take away from this that you're not supposed to have an element of a, a category for really hard work because we are supposed to work hard. That's evident too. That's how things get done. In the kingdom, though, it's different. When it comes to spiritual things, that's not how things get done. I, every Sunday when I'm 
Driving home, I pray, um, there's a parable in, in the Gospels that says the farmer sows the seed and then he goes to bed. And somehow he wakes up in the next few weeks and there's a harvest. And seed is, is another way of understanding Scripture. And one of the things that we do is we say, a preacher teaches truth from God's Word. And somehow it grows in some people and other people it doesn't. But the preacher doesn't stay anxiously awake at night hoping it works because the Spirit will do it. That's how a church grows. And then we find ways to love one another as we're gathering and huddling around the warmth of new insights about God. I was in a room one time with a, a group of pastors and we were getting trained by a senior pastor of a large church and many of you would know the name if I said it. And it was fascinating. Some of the things that he said were really, really interesting and helpful. But one thing just seemed to grind, and I was young, and it just seemed to grind against me. It just seemed to like halt the gears of momentum, and I just felt like, oh, it doesn't, that feels like death to me. Because he said, you should never turn your phone off. If you're a pastor, you better never not be available, even on your day off. If someone from the church calls, you better be at their beck and call. And this guy was a major pastor of a huge church. That just felt like, man, that feels like it's more, like, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not God. That feels insane. I can't carry the weight of God on my shoulders. Now, as a pastor, you should be available and responsive to your people. But to never have your phone off felt like insanity. And it would break your heart if you saw what happened to that church. He drove the people into the ground who worked with him. There were moral failures, gross moral failures. People were losing their minds on this staff. And they were burned out, and the church was for a while on the verge of shutting down. There's a trail in Europe that you can follow, these old revivals where groups of people would get together and um, they would work their fingers to the bone to cause these revivals to happen and rent tents and, and get the whole town to come out to these meetings and work really hard at giving a very emotive and powerful speech about God and they would drum up their emotions and all these people would flood to God, it looked like at least. And then they would go, they would take their tent, they'd go to the next place. There's a trail of these cities throughout Europe. You know what they call them now? The burned out district. Because they were trying to do ministry. They were trying to serve Jesus in their own power. And now there's hardly any Christians left in these cities. And atheism run, runs rampant. A life of serving others in your own strength leads to burnout. And we, I've said this before that some people will say, well, the devil never rests, so why should we? And our answer is, why would you want to model your life after Satan? Because Jesus probably has a better handle on how it works. If you follow the life of Jesus, you see this pattern of 
time alone and time with people. It's a tension we need to learn to live in. We need to know how to be alone and we need to know how to be with people. He would spend extended time alone with the Father and then he would go do fruitful ministry. And then he would go hide in the mountains or take a walk along the sea by himself and then go do fruitful ministry. And then he would get up earlier than everybody else and they'd be looking for him and he'd be hiding and then he'd go do fruitful ministry. It was a pattern in the life of Jesus. His authority and his power came from his time with the Father. That's how he paid attention to where the Father was moving so he could join him. Paul says something similar to this in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He talks about his ministry and the goals of his ministry. And at the end of it, it says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul, I mean, most people look at Paul's life and they think that it was an insane schedule. And you forget about all the white, the white space in his calendar that is traveling <laughs> He was on a lot of boats. wasn't always a pleasant ride, but he was on a lot of boats. He walked a lot. He traveled a lot. I mean, he was going all over the place. We just get the highlights of activity, but there was a lot of white space in there. And that's where I believe he spent time with God in a way that energized God's energy in him for the work of ministry. There's an old quote. I couldn't even find who said this, but burnout happens when the wick and not the oil is burning. You know those old lanterns? We used to have one. My mom still might have it. Those old lanterns, and it has, um, it's like a glass, and there's a, a cylinder in the bottom of where the oil is, and then there's a wick that goes up from the oil, and you light the end of the wick. And the wick is burning a little bit, but mostly it's the oil that's burning off the wick. Burnout happens when the wick and not the oil is burning. Burnout happens when it's, your, it's all your energy instead of God's energy at work in you. And one of the fine-tuned skills of being a Christian is figuring out exactly what that means. <laughs> and intuitively, as we walk with Jesus, we begin to learn, oh, wait, 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 I'm doing this in my own strength. I need to, I need to pray about this. The second thing, we forfeit the second greatest commandment when we overextend our lives. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. We stop loving people when we overextend our lives. Because the first thing that happens when you live in an overextended life is you begin to resent other people. We see this in verse 40. You can just feel Martha's resentment. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. It sounds like Martha doesn't, she's not just resenting Mary, she's also resenting Jesus. An overextended life always leads to resentment. And the second thing that happens is that you begin to unloving, unlovingly pull other people into the stressful orbit of your overextended life. Have you ever experienced that? So, like you're, you're pulling others now into your stress and your anxiety. Imagine all of us ha are spinning three plates. <clears throat> That's a manageable life, right? Three major things. We're spinning the plate of family, 
and we're spinning the plate of uh, work, and we'll just call it church. We've got these three things spinning, and we can manage these three things on our own without a whole lot of help, and all of us are doing it. And every now and again, a crisis happens, or something wonderful happens, and it adds another plate or two to your life. Car breaks down, you have to get a new car, you have to figure that out, you have to pick up an extra job, you have a kid, whatever, whatever it looks like, something happens that you have another plate now to spin. You know what the church does? We're all spinning three. The people around that person who are spinning their three plates say, you know what, don't worry about it. Boom, I got you. I can handle my three plates and I can help you with a couple extra. We're going to be fine. We're going to come around you and we're going to help you through that. But every now and again, someone loses their mind and decides, I love chaos. I haven't had enough chaos in my life lately. And chaos brings a type of adrenaline into my life. So I'm going to just keep adding plates. And now I have 13 plates spinning and the people around you who are spinning three are like, oof, I'm going to do the best I can. Boom. And I'm going to come over here and I'm going to hit a couple. But before, there's no way one person can keep 13 plates spinning. This self-inflicted wound because it brings some type of adrenaline. And pretty soon all their plates crash to the ground and all the plates of everyone else around them crash to the ground. Because we've been pulled into the chaos of their life. That happens in real time. Martha took what should have been one extra plate and made it 13. I mean, Martha had all these people over. She'd have been just fine. She wouldn't have had to talk to Mary if she would have just opened the cupboard and got the ramen noodles out, boiled it, fixed it for Jesus and the people, and done it with a sense of gratitude that she gets to serve. Jesus, like we said last week, would not have been upset with ramen noodles. She went out and killed some animals and was trying to cook them and got in over her head. It was a self-inflicted wound. She made it much more complicated, which is what we do, than it needed to be. And if we were in the room with her, we probably would have looked at her, go talk to Mary, like, Jesus, um... You see what I'm doing in the kitchen? You see her sitting here, my sister who lives here with me? Can you do something about this? We would have probably been sitting there and thought, you know what? She's right. Like, Mary, I would help, but I don't live here. Like, you, you probably really should go help her. That's what we would have thought. That's what I would have thought, and Jesus would have shut us down too. Because Jesus said, no, 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 no. She chose her thing. Leave her be. In the same way that he would have done that for Martha. If Mary would have said to Jesus, look at her in there, all happy, making food, making, it's ramen noodles. And I'm sitting here being really spiritual, looking at you, listening to you. I'm like a disciple, I'm a follower, I'm getting great instruction. Go tell her to do something more important and get in here and learn. She's missing out on this opportunity. I'm going to have to tell her everything you said. Jesus would have said, no, 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 no. She chose her thing. And she's doing it with an act of worship to me. Let her be. He would have said it to Mary. 
Third thing, we forfeit intimacy with God when we overextend our lives. A few years ago, Kara and I um, were instructed to begin taking solitude retreats. I think it's been three years. Solitude retreats for us are, we go away once a quarter for two nights alone. We're not watching Netflix. We're not watching TV. We're not planning. We're not strategizing. We're praying and being with God alone. Two nights. She has her space. She found where she goes, and we have it scheduled. And I, find, I know I'm going to be going in December to a cabin in the woods with no electricity and no plumbing, and I'm going to love every second. It's got a wood-burning fire stove. That's all I need. And we go there and be alone with God. And the first few times that we went, it felt really, really, really lonely. And that's a type of pain that's hard to sit through sometimes. And we were lonely because we told each other, I'm not turning my phone on, don't try to get a hold of me. Maybe I'll check in with the girls in the evening. But other than that, I just need to be alone, even from each other. And we would talk about how lonely it was. And what we realized is that loneliness is an invitation to deeper intimacy with God. And when we avoid it, we lose out. And have you ever considered that that's why Jesus spent so much time with the Father? Because he knew what was in the heart of men? Have you ever thought about he invited them with him, but then went off alone to a garden because he knew in a few hours, after spending alone time with the, God, with the Father for a few hours, he knew that everyone would leave him? Did you ever think that Jesus probably knew he couldn't really trust us to be faithful friends of his? when he was here on earth and he needed to know that there was one person with him? That's what I've begun to experience in these solitude times. And the funny thing is, we're beginning to learn, as we heard someone else say, that when we're alone with Jesus is when we're actually the least lonely. She's nodding her head back there because it's true. On those solitude weekends is when I feel most comforted and at home with Jesus. And the lie that we hear in Christian circles is do everything you can for as many as you can because we are activistic as much as one can be activistic in our culture of church in this time of history. It's what we do, we do things. And it sounds really spiritual to say, who has time to spend a couple nights alone with Jesus once a quarter? That's insane. Who has time to do that? That sounds like something that a Christian would say. It sounds spiritual, but I think we need to be careful of things that sound like something that a Christian would say. 
and pay more attention to what Jesus would say because the problem with that line of thinking is Jesus doesn't agree with you. Because he had three years to accomplish his mission. And the only thing at stake with his mission was the eternal salvation of every human being who has ever lived. So the stakes might be higher for us, but he had three years to accomplish this mission. Which makes me wonder, why on earth were you always trying to get away from the crowds to be alone? Intimacy with God adds value to everything else you do in life, and I will die saying that. No one will ever convince me otherwise. That the priority of my life shouldn't be time alone with God. You'll never convince me otherwise. And people have tried. But intimacy with God, when you get to the place when, when you're alone, you're no longer lonely, you work through that, and it took about a year of retreats. But when you work through the loneliness and you begin to enjoy Jesus, oh, wait a second, wait a second, I'm not alone, you're here. Everything else that you do in life is infused with a deeper help and power from the presence of God in your life. Everything. I want to end with some very practical applications. And these are the applications for the whole series. One, begin to notice where the chaos of your overextended life is spilling over into other people's lives. What can you prune? And just remember, if you go along with the pace of this world, if you go along with the stream of this world, your life will be lived at a faster and faster and faster pace. It's the stream we swim in. It is our culture. If you go with the pace of the world, your life will become more complex, more complicated, and faster. And you have to have places in your life where you're pumping the brakes and reevaluating. wait, did I add too much? Am I spilling over into other people's life at this point? And if you are, you should figure out a way that you can prune your life so that you're loving the people around them instead of, around you instead of harming them. And the second thing is, this December, put regular times for cultivating intimacy with God in your calendar first. Karen and I do this every December. December is like a time of reflection for us. And what, the first thing that we do is we ask, where did God surprise us this year? Because it reminds us that we have great plans and it's usually not how things work out. There's a great saying, I want to make sure I get it right. Most things don't tend to work out. That's a great saying. That's so true. And at the end of the year, we look back and we say, okay, where, where did God surprise us this year? And it has been such a faith-building, enriching, beautiful, wonderful practice for us. And it's always amazing how he surprises us and we take time to notice it. And the second thing I would encourage you to do in this extended plan time is schedule your times of solitude with God. If you don't put it in the calendar, it won't, it won't happen. <laughs> I promise you, if you do not put that in the calendar, it won't happen. So Kara and I are going to do this in December. Um, and we're going to go through like we do every year. When's, when's your quarterly solitude and when's mine? Let's get them in the calendar now. Let's reserve our places. When's our monthly 
Solitude, which we slacked off a little bit. We need to do a little better this year. When's our monthly solitude time going to be where we get away from the family just for a day and spend time alone with God, not accessible to anybody? Because if you don't put those in the calendar, it won't happen. And then put in these daily times where you pump the brakes. Maybe it's five minutes at a time throughout the day that adds, that infuses meaning and purpose into your life in a way that nothing else will. Solitude, quiet is the answer. Being alone with God, there's something about that that has changed my life more than anything else. And the practice is beyond prayer and reading scripture. Nothing else holds a candle to what that has done. So I, throughout the day, either it's five minutes or 30 seconds at a time, pump the brakes and sit quietly with God. And I'm just still and knowing that he is God. And then I get back to the thing in front of me. Well, believe it or not, there's more to be gleaned from this passage. So we're gonna spend the next year, just kidding, but you should read it again. This is a good passage, and I know it's one that we, we hear a lot, you know, church folk talk about this passage and, and hear about it a lot, but there's a lot more in there. I probably could go another couple rounds with this one. There's a lot in there, so enjoy it. Read it a few more times. Um, next week, Pastor Al is going to launch us into our Christmas series, and um, I'll probably sneak in here. Kara and I are taking the week off. It's our anniversary. We're going to be going away tomorrow night. Um, But um, be praying for this Christmas series because I'm I'm really excited about it. Really excited about it because I love Christmas. Christmas is amazing, and this place is going to look amazing. Just wait. Just wait and see. Stand and pray with me. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.